Hello and welcome to Pod People, the show where we dissect your favorite and least favorite horror films with the meticulous nature of a serial killer. I am Matisse Van Rossum and I'm joined today by Ben Sheets. Hello, hello, hello. And Eugene Lundeen. Greetings! And today we're especially excited to welcome our first ever guest onto the show, the creative director at Light Arc Studios, Cleveland Mosier. Hello! How are you doing, Cleve? Ah, uh, marvelous, man. Doing great. You guys ready to talk about some horror movies? Oh, yes. Let's we do got it. some good ones today. You know it. But before we do, uh, we have a little bit of news. Ben? Yeah, yeah. We have a very interesting story here, only tangentially related to horror. So this was a Gizmodo story, and it's about the uh, stipulations Disney is trying to put on theaters in order to run The Last Jedi. Um, namely, they'll get uh, 65% of the ticket revenue uh, instead of 55%. For four weeks after it comes out, they are requiring the largest auditorium available, exclusively showing The Last Jedi. If any theater decides, oh, hey, we don't want to do this, uh, it'll be an extra 5% of ticket revenue. And the reason I wanted to talk about the story a little bit is it is kind of terrible for horror and indie movies and low-budget movies in general because they have to compete with this arguably anti-competitive behavior. Yeah, and well, honestly, like, how is anything supposed to compete with this? It's like whenever a new Star Wars movie comes out, it's already going to be the largest release in theaters at the time. And how do you compete with Star Wars? It's kind of ironic to me, honestly, because it's like fucking Disney has become the Empire. In a way, yeah. It's a dangerous precedent to do that, because I think as we get more and more mega franchises, especially from Disney between Marvel, and Star Wars, you know, they'll have a sort of controlling stake of theaters. Ticket prices will go up yet again. Just this last summer, it was one of the lowest box office attendance years in history. I can tell you that's probably because tickets are so expensive. No one wants to go out to a crowded, loud, gross, dirty theater and pay 17 bucks for a movie or whatever they pay. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. It's It feels pretty extortionary. Especially since they've acquired Marvel and now Star Wars, it just allows them to even more dominate the box offices and basically bully theaters into doing things for them, which is definitely what Correct. this is. This is bullying. And, yeah, it's, and it is new behavior. You are you are right about that. Right. I would agree. And it just makes me wonder, like, when is Disney going to build their own Death Star and just, like, fly it around <laughs> and any theater that does not want to uh, cooperate just gets fucking blasted. Do you guys think that this is, like, really the final nail in the coffin of the summer blockbuster? That's a good question. I, I think I think five years from now, we'll start finally getting a little bit of mega franchise fatigue. We have to get to the point where it's superheroes that really no one cares about and Star Wars 17 or whatever they're on by then. It's just a, you know, a cash grab. People love Marvel movies, so they'll go see it. But at what point are even those diehard Marvel movie fans going to be like, do I really want to go drop my money in the box office just because it's a Marvel movie? Because that's the point that they're at now, is that they don't even have to worry about creating quality movies 
issues because they know that they have such a built-in fan base that all they have to do is release a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie and people will go to the box office to see it no matter what. Well, and the thing is about this, it it feels so short-sighted, you know? Once this bullying behavior goes on in the theaters, they're not just gonna take the pay cut. They'll increase ticket prices so they can take the revenue they're losing. Right. Higher and higher ticket prices are gonna make people have even less tolerance for shitty movies, in my opinion. And eventually, people will just not want to go to the theater. And Uh it's a shame because going to the movie theater is an awesome experience. I agree. Although that being said, there's always a lot of other uh, factors in play when you go to the movie theater. Like, the audience can really suck. (laughs) Like, uh, Eugene and I have had several of those experiences this year going to see movies where the audience just absolutely ruined the whole experience. Yes, and they usually end up being horror movies when it happens because people get rowdy during those so yeah i think that the theaters are going to take all of this the hardest is going to be one room non-profit theaters the small like small town yep indie revenues they're they're probably going to have the the worst time there's no way they're going to get a hold of uh star wars under those conditions this is definitely i would see this as at the very least another nail in the coffin my question is where does movie going go from here I think what we'll start seeing before too long is that when these movies are released, they go straight to video on demand where you have to pay to be able to stream them for a certain period of time, just like you'd have to pay to go see them in the box office. And then after they've been out for a while, then they'll become free to stream on certain services. But I think I think the movie theater is really going to be moving even more so than it already has been into the home, but they're going to start jacking up prices on stuff like that. Because if people aren't going to go to the movies, then how are movies going to make their money, right? I know they were trying the immediate video on demand thing a year or two ago. They were charging like $50 per viewing. Yeah, fuck that. Same That's day. That's ridiculous. It's like, no. nobody's going to pay 50 fucking dollars to watch a 90 minute movie. That's absurd. I don't even understand how they can charge so much for like fights, like pay-per-view fights. It's... I think that there are people who would play that for Star Wars. For Star Star Wars, maybe, but those people are fucking rubes. Those people do exist, so oh, yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cancel it out for sure. I have a feeling Disney is not too worried either. We've seen a huge boom no. in the international marketplace for movies, particularly in China, especially with tentpole movies like this, where they have directly pushed action movies where you don't really need many subtitles. For instance, like the World of Warcraft movie that came out last year, or was that two years ago? Like, it flopped in the U.S., but it did gangbusters in China. The Chinese loved that shit. That's, we're definitely starting to see uh, a big turn towards the international market. Filmmakers don't even care if they're making bad movies, because even if it doesn't do good in the States, it might do well abroad. And that's the thing. Usually, in the past, they were reserved for summers and holiday seasons but now since they have so many they're evenly spacing them out through the whole year so it's nothing but those in the theaters because of it you can't get breakaway hits because guess what that big theater is reserved for the tentpole disney movie 
Well, I think that about wraps up the news. So do we want to jump into our topic for this week? Yes, let's do it. The theme of this week's episode is let's play a game. It's all about Jigsaw as well as the torture porn genre at large. We will talk about three other torture porn movies. Yes, gornography, as some people may call it as well. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk about the original Saw, Hostel, and then Audition as well. So let's just jump right into Jigsaw. Tell us about Jigsaw, Ben. So Jigsaw is the eighth film in the Saw franchise. It is sort of a reboot sequel. Um, The last movie was called The Final Chapter. It's uh, not the most fitting name anymore. It's been, like, what, six years since that movie came out? Seven. Seven. Saw 3D, the final chapter, came out in 2010. Wow, I feel old, I feel old, too. I remember going to see that movie in the theaters. We start with this guy running from the cops, and he has kind of a, a detonator thing in his hand. And he's like, you can't stop the game. Then we cut to... Five people in, you know, this generic escape room thing that they do in every movie. One by one, they start getting picked off by these traps. I'm kind of going to leave it at that. We can jump into it more as we discuss it. Right. I think one problem is to talk about it, we are going to have to spoil a good part of the movie. So anyone that does not want to know what happens at the end, then you should watch the movie first and then come back to this podcast. Yeah, this is uh, spoilers for the entire Saw franchise from here on out. If you haven't seen the Saw franchise, it's known for uh, having absurdly convoluted twists at the end of each film. Uh, That's kind of a trademark at this point. I'm assuming we're kind of all in agreement that this wasn't a great movie. (laughs) No, this was not a great movie. Yeah, unfortunately not. At all. It is is a regrettable experience. What I will say is the Saw franchise has a special place in my heart because I feel like Saw is what initially got me into horror in a lot of ways. When I saw the first one when I was a a very young adolescent, the edginess uh, appealed to me a lot. Um, At that time, I always thought that each of the more and more convoluted twists that they would throw in, I thought it was brilliant. I thought they were weaving this like masterful like web of interconnectivity as, you know, somebody around the age of 11 or 12 would. So when I when I went into this movie, I was really hoping that they would try to do something new with it. It's been seven years since the last one, so I was thinking, well, maybe they're going to try to do something different with the Saw franchise, like fresh start, something new. But after watching this, this was super par for the course, and it just further uh, convoluted an already extremely muddled uh, timeline. I was very bothered by... The fact that the film neither catered to fans of you know the previous seven films, uh, and it also I think did nothing for people who hadn't seen any of the other Saw films. It was just all the wrong levels of convoluted. Right. It doesn't feel like a continuation of a franchise that ended seven years ago. It feels like this movie could have come out the year after Saw Seven, and no one would have been the wiser. See, I kind of disagree that it could have come out the year after because all of the other Saw chapters up to then 
and we're pretty interconnected and the only real connection we have with this one is John Kramer the Jigsaw Killer I suppose you know, so. no other character from any of the other films return there was the prime location being relevant to Jigsaw's wife there was that small tie-in and also the the reference to all the other prior traps yeah they they did some referential stuff but they didn't bring back any of the previous characters probably because they couldn't get any of those actors on board uh, yeah. Tobin Bell honestly was probably just sitting at home waiting to get the call that they were doing a new Saw movie just like yeah. sitting quietly in his armchair every time the phone I rings would, I would absolutely love to know what the production pipeline was for this movie because well no I don't think chronologically it felt like it could have come out right after the previous Saw film quality wise I felt like it could have come out a month after the previous Saw film <laughs> like the, the writing was to me so beyond abysmal even for the Saw franchise that it really caught me off guard I, I remember the first couple of Saw films having some decent dialogue and characterization I mean even in the seventh Saw film with the rotating wheel they managed to characterize each person on that wheel you know within five minutes and it, they felt like genuine people in this one every character was was beyond flat and I felt like they could have written the script in a month well let's just jump into the trap so the first trap we see comes right after that foot chase in a very uh, clinical clean looking room and everyone is chained up to the wall with these bucket helmets jigsaw makes his spiel saying like he needs a blood sacrifice the chains start pulling everyone towards a bunch of saws that was that was one of the things about this movie that i found really annoying is that they did so many things with saw blades it's like yes. hey guys remember this is a saw movie <laughs> let's have as many saws as we can possibly have the the first trap is them just being pulled towards a wall full of saw blades and all they have yep. to do to escape that first trap is just cut themselves a little bit on one of the saws and then their chain will come loose which already feels like such an enormous cop out correct and also at like most of any saw films with these starting traps the the characters are basically rendered useless after that first point if we're cutting for realism pun intended because they would all have gone into shock every single one of them would be a blithering nutcase after that first scene they they wouldn't be able to comprehend the tape cassettes or any of the laws because they're all they would have all been going through shock well the funny part about the first trap is like you have the one smart girl that like figures it out right away and tries to tell everyone else and no one else is listening to her and then you have the fifth person who's like unconscious and their body is just like slowly being dragged towards the wall <laughs> I was laughing so hard during yeah. that just, he's just totally oblivious to all like the <laughs> screaming and like loud machinery and stuff around him. He's just unconscious being dragged across the floor by a chain. I, I'm not gonna lie, like, as, as comical as that was, that was probably, like, one of my favorite parts of the film, is oh, that yeah. Jigsaw actually made a mistake for once, and that to me was very satisfying. Like, I, yeah, that's, that might be one of, like, the highlight points for me, was him being dragged across. So one hell of a, a hangover. <laughs> yeah, and then he, <laughs> and he wakes up when he's, like, uh, like, a foot away from, <laughs> from the wall. 
Yeah. Um, I've had days like that. So after that, then you've got the two women, the one who is uh, the lead, I suppose, the smart one, um, this other extremely uh, ditzy type chick, uh, the asshole guy, and then the young smart dude who's willing to cooperate. So already you've got like the same recurring type of characters. There's always the smart one, the dumb one, the one who's an asshole who doesn't want to cooperate and so on and so forth so this is already nothing new for the franchise at all so after they all give a blood sacrifice the wall opens but they're still attached to the chains yeah they're in a barn yeah it's like a barn they uh keep getting dragged and one of them finds a tape three uh like syringes fall from the wall or from yeah, the ceiling until or that something point- when the needles fall, I was keen. I, I really liked the idea of the chain trap carrying on to the next. I was sort of hoping that the entire event, they would be chained up. Like, I, I thought was, so I was sort too. of hoping that, that that would carry on for multiple rooms. So I was I was keen on that. And then, yeah, when the syringes popped down, I was like, how are these correlating to the chains? I don't understand. It, it was just, it was silly. There was no real mechanic yeah. between the chain hanging and the syringes. And so, of course, this is uh, the same, uh, same motivation for Jigsaw that we've had throughout the course of the other movies. He traps people who don't have an appreciation for life or who are just general scumbags, gives them a means of redeeming themselves and escaping. If they fail, they die. And then this next trap with the needles is for the dumb blonde who we discover um, caused a woman to have an asthma attack and die because she stole her purse and she could have helped the lady, but instead she elected to take take the $3.51 or 57 cents that was left in her purse and and yep. ran off. There are so many, I have so many angry questions here for the writers. Like, I just want to shake them. First off, you don't see where Jigsaw is in this scenario. You never see where Kramer is. Right. So how does is he, he know? He, has he just like become this omniscient being full on now? Because he's always had like these omniscient powers that aren't unexplained. So we learn from uh, from Jigsaw that the, the dumb blonde has been poisoned and that in the three syringes one contains a saline solution that does nothing one of them is an antidote and one of them is like a highly caustic acid she has to choose the right one and if she does everybody will be released from their chains otherwise they'll all be pulled up uh, into the ceiling and strangled and each of the syringes have a number on them and it's supposed to be like the the amount of cash she stole and so obviously she knows what the correct answer is but for some reason she's refusing to tell anyone which syringe has the cure in it well she even right, makes even though she's already mumbled it you see her make that connection right but she doesn't want to like get the cure for some reason she would rather just have everyone die what were you going to yeah, say including herself. well just that same thing that she mentions it and even then it's her fear of needles or just being a little baby honestly that she doesn't just have it injected until it's too late and the rude guy decides to just inject all three just stabs her with all three of them i'm not gonna lie i was kind of rooting for the rude guy after that because she was gonna kill all of them right she was she was 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 refusing stupid she was refusing to make a decision he he just saved all of them that was the decision that needed
needed to be made as far as I'm concerned. I, I feel like I would have done the same thing in his boots. I'm getting strangled by a chain because this chick isn't following the rules. I would just stab her with all three of the needles too. She, it's just time to move forward. She knew which one was the right one. Yeah. She could have saved them easily. She just was being fucking stupid. Yeah. Throughout and an, the whole thing. Another thing too is typically in all of the other Saw movies, if you want to survive, you're really gonna have to like pay a price. Like you're gonna have to grievously injure yourself. And in, in this one, the first trap, all you gotta do is cut yourself a little bit on the saw, not even a lot. You're let go. All you gotta do is have the chick inject herself with the proper antidote needle, which she knows which one it is, and then they're fine. These these games seem to have extremely low stakes, like right off the bat, in comparison to what we've seen from the entire rest of the franchise. I, I concur, and to me, this is also the moment where I realized how bad the dialogue was going to be when the girl has then had the three needles injected into her throat. The, you see the acid melting her throat out, and one of the people says, oh, we gotta help her before the acid gets to her heart. <laughs> it's too late. Uh, yeah, it's like, like wait, it's, yeah, it's she done. For you. <laughs> She's done. Yeah. And she really has nobody to blame but herself in that situation. Like, yeah, the guy was a yeah. douche about it, but he was just trying to save his life and everybody else's life because that stupid bitch was unwilling. Me. Yeah, he was He was. Being pragmatic as far as I'm concerned. He was yeah. dis- he was portrayed as a douche there because his character was a douche, but that was not a douchey decision. Right. No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. He was being pragmatic. So, uh, before we move on to the next trap, the corresponding narrative that's happening at the same time is of course, this is all being investigated by the police. And they're saying, John Kramer died ten years ago. How is he back? There must be a copycat killer or something. So, we're- I would say narrative is a strong word but yes yeah no you have like a gumshoe detective on the case who's like a total stereotypical like detective i'm too old for this shit kind of dude hard ass drives a, a sports car instead of a police cruiser always smoking a cigarette he immediately comes across as like just the douchiest and for yep. some reason they decide to involve like the coroner and his assistant in the investigation and the coroner himself becomes more like the lead investigator we we see his investigation more than we actually see what the cops are doing and he's got a generic backstory did a tour in fallujah was captured by the taliban tortured a lot he obviously has a vendetta against people who torture other people (laughs) yeah or it's very apparent from the beginning that oh he's been tortured to some degree so he's gained some like fucked up admiration for it and is probably the new Saw killer, right. which is immediately where my brain went when I saw that. Because you and, see the scars on his back. And then, of course, we have the red herring of his uh, his hot female assistant who is, like, weirdly obsessed with the Jigsaw killings. We find How- out that she has a warehouse where she has been painstakingly recreating all of Jigsaw's traps to create, like, a sort of museum. I call it the Emporium Incriminatorium. 
So of course, as as soon as the the police discover that, she becomes like suspect number one. But it's like that's because way, of course. But of course, it's also way too obvious for us as the audience to buy her being the killer. Yeah. I just couldn't get over how expensive that warehouse full of traps would have been. Right? Like, on, how does a a coroner pay for that shit? A no, coroner's assistant, right? Because yeah, for the listeners, it's not just a warehouse. It is an underground facility that you take a warehouse elevator down to. There's no way she could afford that place. No, definitely yeah. not on a coroner's assistant salary. But they do introduce the the motorcycle trap that we'll talk about a little bit later. Well, she says that the that the rumor is that he used that trap in a game that the police never found. That happened like way before anybody knew about him. And she's been just getting like the blueprints for all these traps off the dark web. So kids stay off the dark web. It seemed like she was like yeah. turned on by the traps. Right. Yes. Like that's definitely the implication that she got some sort of sexual gratification from these traps. But then later on, she's perfectly willing to go try to stop Jigsaw. Like she's got a big old fucking 357 and she's like, let's go stop him. <laughs> it's like, well, I wait, I thought you were aroused by all of this. I think what they were trying to imply is that it started for her as a detective means of trying to get inside the mind of the killer and slowly became like this weird fetish. It was not portrayed very well, but I think that's what they were going for. It's very screwy. It doesn't make any sense at all. Another like huge plot hole too in relation to the franchise is that we find out at the end of Saw 7, sorry, spoilers for a seven-year-old movie, Carrie Elwes from the very first Saw movie has been in on it the entire time. That he's, throughout the course of all seven movies, has been helping John Kramer and his various protégés set up these traps and stuff through his medical uh, and surgical knowledge. Yet, he is never once mentioned in this movie. His character does not make a reappearance. It's like they're trying to retcon him ever being involved. Well, yeah, that's like what I was mentioning earlier. The only recurring character really is John Kramer. They don't really reference the rest of the series much at all. I feel like they're trying to reboot it. They don't want to connect it, but that just makes it even more convoluted in a way. So they, they all get unchained. They look around this barn, and there's a door that just has not exit scribbled on it in spray paint. And so obviously the asshole guy is like, oh, this must be an exit. And he, like, goes straight for it, and the floor, like, falls out, and he gets his foot stuck uh, in, like, some sort of, like, trap. Like a wire trap a bunch of wires that are tightening slowly around his leg and so the only way he can get out is if the remaining two characters go into an empty grain silo for some reason. Yep. This is the point too where we start to see the uh, the HD LCD TVs being used in the saw traps. Now again big spoiler for the film but we do find out later on that this whole thing happened before the events of even the original saw film and we have a massive continuity chronological error here because these are modern HD LCD TVs when the doctor in the first Saw film is using a pager. Right? Yeah, and they're using like CRT TVs and like all the rest of them and everything yeah. looks so much cleaner in this one. It's almost and like uh, John Kramer used all of his budget on this first trap and then was like, oh fuck, I don't have any money left. I gotta scrounge together whatever I can. And that's why the rest of the, <laughs> the movie's traps are so 
uh, janky. Right. Well, though, that's one of the things about the first couple of Saw movies. Everything looks very homemade. Like the trap. Right. Radio Shack was still around. Right. Radio Shack was still around. Like it looks like John Kramer like welded all of these things together out of like scrap metal that he found. It feels like a like a product of its time. Whereas with this one, everything is so grandiose and huge and complex and clean. And uh-huh. then we find out that this this game took place before even the events of the original Saw movie, and we're just supposed to buy that? I did not buy that. No, not at all. They don't do a great job of making you buy it. Well, I guess if we've spoiled that, we might as well get into the remainder of the spoils. We find out that we're cutting back and forth in time. The investigation is going on in present day, but the game is going on in the past. And of course, the the coroner guy is the new Jigsaw, and he has replicated exactly John Kramer's very first game that he was a part of. He was the guy uh, who was unconscious in the first room who was just being dragged across the floor. And he was there because he fucked up John Kramer's cancer diagnosis. But as soon as he cut himself, Kramer decided that he didn't deserve to die for mixing up the files. And so he comes in and saves him and makes him his very first protege. But uh, let's jump back to the grain silo it fills up with like dry corn uh like saw blades start falling from the ceiling right well they have to escape before they're buried alive but at a certain point the grain stops falling and they just start dropping a bunch of like saw blades and knives and other miscellaneous sharp objects pitchforks and it feels like he was trying to smother them with grain and then he ran out and was like oh shit well uh what do i do now and he just grabs for anything sharp he can find and just starts like trying to throw it down on top of them like like he's fucking improvising or something the guy pulls the lever which like cuts off his foot and it lets all the grain out and the two other people escape oh i did want to mention uh right before he pulls the lever that of the many things to drop one of them was individual nails which dropped from maybe i don't know 25 feet uh yep. okay, let's let's even pretend it was 40 feet and the nails somehow like hit the main character and go like deep into her arm i no. that's not how dropped nails work no nope. that's just not how gravity works at all i, w- I was a little i was kind of giggling at, at the at the happened. very most she would get maybe a light scrape if that yeah <laughs> if that exactly. like they would not penetrate deeply into her body and that was i i noticed that too i'm glad you brought that up because i had forgotten yeah. about how ridiculous that is the only like really good trap in this whole movie was the was the motorcycle one that happens immediately after this. Yeah, explain yes. the motorcycle trap a little bit. Okay, so it's essentially a big chamber with a spiral uh, saw blade running all the way down it, and it's powered by a motorcycle engine on top, and the victim is lowered slowly into it, and he has to uh, pull the brake lever at the very bottom before he gets uh, slapped to ribbons um a man-sized cuisinart yes yes no it was very much like a big old blender yeah and this was probably the the most creative 
kill in the movie, I guess. Yeah, I liked the design of the trap. No, it was, it was okay. It didn't quite do as much for me as some of the other traps throughout the franchise have been as ridiculous as they got. If they're going to try to reboot the franchise after seven years, either go back to the simplistic minimalism of the first one, or just go way the fuck out there, over the top. Yeah, well, This one is like, it, it's in limbo between between those two extremes, and I think that's why it doesn't work. I see it as neither a good pornography film or a good detective film. It fills neither of those feelings for me at all. There, there was virtually no detective work, honestly. Well, no, the, it was terrible. The punishment that got this guy into the trap to begin with was, like, he sold Jigsaw's... Nephew. Like, nephew. nephew. a motorcycle with the brakes out. But it just makes me wonder, did the nephew, like, test drive the motorcycle before he bought it? Obviously Isn't that not. a normal procedure people do? Yeah, or, na- or yeah, would have would have used the brakes at least once before getting on the interstate. Right, like <laughs> he he wouldn't have just gone right out from the garage immediately onto the interstate. Like he would have gone down the street a little bit, realized the brakes didn't work, and been like, "Hey, buddy, give me back my money." Yeah, he would have been coming up on cornering out of the suburban neighborhood and hit a tree at like fifteen miles an hour. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> he would not have he would not have like died on the interstate at like forty miles. There's, no. I had the fortune of seeing this film with my friend Jesse, who does assistive work on diabetic amputee surgeries. So that was really fortunate for me, because uh, when the guy's leg is cut off, I had someone who could, like, give me medical input on that as we were watching it. Uh, after the guy, the rude guy, has his leg cut off in that trap, the, the main female character ties a tourniquet around his, his fully severed leg, which right. realistically bought him 8 to 11 minutes if, I mean, really, his entire leg was sliced off. That's every artery. So he's he's dead. Like apart from uh, Tobin Bell, I think he was my favorite actor of the film, and not because he was good, but just just out of the comedic. Like I, I got some giggles out of him, which right. I I think that that actor knew what he was in for, and he did a very good job just hamming it up and giving it his all. And I I appreciated it because I, I I feel I would have done the same like if I had his role, he would not have even made it to that first double take, waking up with no. his leg cut off he like that. He would have been dead. As we continue to later events, keep that in mind. What what remains to be so? So the girl like sneaks plot. out yeah. of the barn to try to escape, and then runs into John Kramer with the nice the nice thin <laughs> soul patch. And at yeah. this point, at this point in the movie, we have not been cued into the fact that this whole game takes place in the past. So it looks like Jigsaw has just come back to life. I mean, especially because he looks so old in well, the scene. Well, right. It's because sort of your first off assumption yes. that he's just still alive. Well, because Tobin Bell is 15 years older than he was when the original one came out. I guess the thing that should have cued everybody in is he has that same thin little soul patch from the first movie <laughs> that doesn't look terribly out of place in uh, 2003. He just looks like an old Fred Durst. But uh, today, that shit looked ridiculous. Yeah, very silly. But yeah, he gives the last two a trap, and it's that 
gun. He to... holds up the shell and says, the key to your freedom, and then loads the shell into the, the thing, and they assume that one of them has to shoot the other. Because there's only one shell, and then they find out it's it's actually a trap shotgun, and the, the real barrel is pointed back at the person who's holding it. So the girl gets to the gun first because the other guy is obviously missing a leg. She tries to shoot him, ends up killing herself. The guy without the leg sees the broken remains of two keys inside the shotgun shell and knows that he is is lost. Even though when he woke up, he did everything right to redeem himself. He tried to convince her before she didn't listen to him and, and blew the keys up. I want to talk about the things the last two people did wrong because they're kind of funny to me. Yes, yeah, so okay. the, the the woman is in the trap because she like smothered her baby and blamed it on her husband. She does smother the baby with a pillow and then after the yes. baby's dead she puts it in bed with her husband and rolls him on top of it. I love how they Correct. never question you know, why is the baby in the bed? Though, right. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, well he obviously went to sleep knowing the baby was not in bed with him. Yeah. Would he not have been like, hey, when did the baby get into bed with me? But of course, no investigation into the matter. He's just taken away to jail and he kills himself and then we find out that they were john kramer's neighbors so he heard them arguing because he lived next door he heard the smothering about the elaborate the baby thing yep once again <laughs> once again omniscient jigsaw knowing something that he should not know and acting upon it but let's talk about the the amputee guy and why <laughs> he's in there in the first place because this was my favorite part of the movie yeah he's yeah. just having a good time he's waving his arm outside of the the sunroof of his car with his friends. Yeah. As, a, as a teenager. And then his friends are being super buzzkills and being like, oh, get inside the car. But they get so distracted trying to stop him, they like run into another car head first. And the After dude, he falls out. The two cars collide head first and just immediately explode. And yeah, like big, budget, giant explosion. big budget explosion. Whereas in reality, they probably would have just crunched together horribly and everybody would have gone flying through the windshield. Instead, the second the noses of the two cars touch, they both explode. Yeah, and somehow that's all the amputees' fault. He's being punished for something that happened, like, at least 20 years prior to this. At yeah. the very least. And we have... No idea how Jigsaw witnessed it. Yeah, how would Jigsaw know any of this? It's At never all. it's never explained how he even knows this person. He just happens to know that he accidentally got two of his friends killed, and that's why he ends up in the game. Right. This guy is the only survivor in that scenario. No one could have told on him. Jigsaw could have been like a person walking down the street and seen it happen at some point. Again, 20 years prior, before the brain cancer and all the rest of it like fucked up his life, and remembered it and then looked up the guy and yeah. then figured out that when they were driving down a block away that he that's that's no better detective work movie. than what any of the detectives were doing in this movie <laughs> it's true jigsaw sure, jigsaw is the real detective he's an omniscient god at this point he is he, he, has, he has supernatural powers there's no question that's canon as far as i'm concerned yeah no he's definitely he's definitely psychic i was almost hoping by the end of this movie that they would just go off the rails and have like jigsaw have been brought back from some sort of 
like witchcraft ritual. Me too. I would have been fine. I would have been much happier with a weird cloning incident. At this, this point, at this point, might as well just go as out there as you can possibly get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I either ghost go John full Kramer. realism, or like go full detective realism. Do your homework on the medical stuff. Just really get into the nitty gritty and tell me a really good story with some great twists. You had a chance to do a fresh start with this film, or yeah, just have some wacky fantasy, elaborate doodads. But they just did this middle ground lukewarm bullshit instead that I think is going to leave everyone dissatisfied. Yeah, and honestly, at this point, I I hope that this movie. I don't know how much it's made exactly. Uh, it's made enough to make another one. Yeah, that's I'm what I was. Sure. That's what I it was, was number one of. in the box office. Obviously, it didn't really compete against anything. I mean, I think the new George Clooney movie came out, but is anyone I know really... Blade Runner's been out for a couple weeks at this point. I'm looking at the at the budget for Jigsaw. It was made for roughly ten million dollars. Opening weekend in the U.S. it did $16 million, so it did recoup its money opening weekend, but not not insanely. As of November 1st, it has made $21 million total. So wow, that's, that's not too great. Actually. That's not too great. It was number yeah. one in the box office opening weekend, but also, like, what was it competing with? Jack shit. Yeah, Paranormal Activity's not a contester anymore, so they don't really have that excuse. Honestly, I hope they do make another one, though. Like, as much as I hated this film, I want I want to see this train wreck keep going. Oof. I want to see it crash. It can get <laughs> so much dumber, I'm sure, and I'm I excited know. to see what they can do to make it even more incoherent. Maybe, maybe as it gets dumber, it'll get better. You had the first two that are really pretty solid, and then it kind of goes downhill, and then it goes back uphill as it gets more and more entertaining and over the top. That is true. Yeah, 3D knew what it was. Yeah. It, it definitely knew what it was doing. I appreciate it for that. They even had fucking Chester Bennington in 3D. <laughs> R.I.P. Yep. R.I.P. Do you want to talk about the ending, the final trap, and how the dumb laser cages were, like... So, this is when we find out that the coroner guy is the killer all along, and he decides to frame the cop guy, even though he kills him in a trap at the very end. So that doesn't make any sort of sense. The final trap is a collar around the neck, sort of like in Saw 3 where except it had all the shotgun shells in Saw 3 but this one is uh cutting lasers that have some sort of extreme range and that they just slowly move in on him and slice his head open like a like a lemon yeah I'm not gonna lie <laughs> I want to see more lasers in Saw. I thought that was great. That's the kind of hyperbole I want to see more of. Sci-fi, like, Dead Space-esque, like, surgical lasers? More, please. If more they do, my jigsaw traps. Yes, but only if they make the rest of the movie equally outlandish. In this movie, it felt so disjointed to have these, like, crazy surgical laser traps, because we don't see anything like that through the rest of the movie, and then just at the end, it's all of a sudden, like, well, lasers. I think that they're making it clear that Logan uh, yeah they're trying to say that he's going to be a different kind of jigsaw and his surgical stuff is going to be a lot more clean and pristine and sci-fi oriented and I'm okay with that I kind of want to see that what those traps would look like I guess we'll but. see uh, but it's just it's so fucking messy that it's just yet another fucking unnecessary person that they've had helping jigsaw out for the entirety of the franchise like what is that at this point he's got like six pro 
proteges or something that were in on it all along, but yep. never seemed to clash with each other or anything. They also reveal that Logan has recreated all of these deaths from the past 10 years that we see, and they oh, are yeah. revealing the bodies one at a time as doppelgangers. Yet, the premise is that no one knew that these, these 10 year prior Jigsaw events occurred. So the only people these doppelgangers could have been for, because there's no public reveal or even reveal for the detectives, as this is all occurring, was for the audience. That's yeah. the only person these doppelgangers could have been for. It was the ultimate writing cop-out, as far as I'm it's, concerned. It was, it, was no the only, it was the only way they could trick the audience into thinking that this first game was happening in the present day. It was for nobody else. It didn't make sense for the killer, for the police, like, none of it. It was just for the audience that he recreated this first game exactly. He had no motivation for doing that. I think it was mostly so they could give John Kramer screen time. Also, yes. Yes. It's all in in service of the plot. It's only to make it so that they can convolute the timeline. Other than that, it served zero purpose. It's so crazy to me that we're at the point in the series where over half of the films jigsaw has been dead yeah well he dies at the end of saw three yeah so that's five five movies now where jigsaw is not even alive it's so ridiculous it's so fucking dumb all right let's get into ratings for this and move on eugene let's have you start off uh what did you think what would you rate this movie out of five i haven't said a lot about this because this movie was just bad i thought (laughs) it didn't need to be made first off all of it just feels cheap they could pull out whatever kind of twist they wanted and people would just have to accept it as canon in the Saw series now and so it's gotten even more confusing. They're continuing that tradition. I can't really recommend this to anyone unless you are a big fan of the Saw series. It's not even a very good Saw movie. I think for me, I'd have to give it just a two. Two, two pods. Two pods out of five. I, I agree with Eugene. Like, there's no point for this movie. I Like I said at the beginning, I was hoping that if they're trying to reboot the franchise, that they would at least do something different with it, or they would at least try to take it in a different direction. But they didn't. They just convoluted the already messy timeline, added unnecessary characters. I laughed a few times. Like, there were a couple of good moments, but it was just really uninspired, you know? I would say that pretty much everything Every other Saw movie is more fun than this. I wasn't ever really bored, I guess, but I did question a lot of the motivations behind this film. I'm going to give it two and a half. All right. Cleveland? Well, uh, as I've mentioned before, I really enjoyed seeing Blade Runner in theaters. Uh, If you have an option, I would see that instead. So I'm going to go for a surreal rating for all of my ratings out of this, and I'm going to give it negative one Blade Runner ticket out of how many Blade Runner tickets I could (laughs) have bought. All right. All right. Um, And then I'm going to actually give a slight defense of this movie. I think they kind of strip the uh, very dark edgy tone of the rest of the series in this. This one's obviously uh, much more colorful, lighter in a lot of ways, in my opinion. You know, the Saw movies are always movies where they're pretty entertaining to get drunk and watch with friends. And I think this one is no exception to that. It's even more accessible in a lot of ways than the other ones. It's dumber than the other movies. But if you're drunk with friends, it's not a bad choice to watch. It's not a good movie, and it's not doing anything new with the series. But it's an entertaining enough movie. I'll give it a two and a half out of five. All right. Well, not counting Cleveland's non-rating of negative one Blade Runner ticket, that gives 
us a average rating of 2.3 pods. So not great. And I I will agree with Ben's defense. There's stuff you can find to enjoy about this movie, but I would say watch pretty much any of the other Saw movies before this one. I would say this is maybe maybe not the worst one, but the most boring for sure. So with that, we're going to go back in time and talk a little bit more in depth about the original Saw, 2003, directed by James Wan. This was James Wan's breakout film, and it was based on a nine-minute short film that he had done prior to this for the sole purpose of trying to get it picked up by a bigger studio. Basic plot, two guys wake up in this uh, old dilapidated bathroom, chained to opposite sides of the room, um, a dead body between them with a gun and a tape recorder in its hand. And they learn that the goal of this game is that one of them has to kill the other. Otherwise, his family will be killed instead. Meanwhile, there is a uh, an investigation into the Jigsaw Killer trying to uh, catch him. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. We find out things about the killer through flashbacks over the course of the movie. We find out things about our two characters, Lawrence and Adam, through flashbacks. Pretty uh, simple setup, I guess. It was really interesting watching this right after the new Jigsaw movie because it's such a stark difference how over-the-top the new one feels, and the original almost feels minimalistic in comparison. It's extremely minimalistic. Um, it's not so much about grand spectacle like the rest of the Saw movies are. It's not even particularly gory. The most blood we see is... Uh, uh, around the end when Carrie Elwes's character uh, saws off his foot and, you know, it's... Even then they cut away for most of it. Right. All the traps are much simpler. They seem like something that with enough effort a real person could set up on their own. They feel grimier, dirtier. It really is much more minimal. And I think to its benefit, honestly, I think that's, that's why uh, this first one did as well as it did is because because it's so simple at its heart. Since you're stuck in the bathroom for the majority of the movie with just the two characters, you get immersed in the location. You feel like you're there and you understand and know the two characters. And it really feels more like a game, too. You know, he has set up clues around the the room that they're stuck in that will allow them to escape. Like, it really does feel like more of a game, whereas a lot of the other Others are just like, well, if you want to get out, you're going to have to hurt yourself real bad. But is that really a game? You actually have to engage intellectually with the first Saw film and and follow the traps and tricks as, as they are presented to you, as opposed to in the latter films where the Saw trap is presented, explained, and then you watch the person fuck it up. Right. That's a good point, actually, Cleveland. In this one, you sort of feel like you're a part of the game. You're yep. discovering things as the characters are on the same ride that they are, whereas with a lot of the other ones, you know certain things that the characters do not. And I, I think that in a lot of way cheapens it, like it over-explains. The first time I saw this movie, like, the twists and turns fucking blew my nips off. Like, yeah. granted, I was, I was pretty young at the time. And I will say, as much nostalgia as 
I have for this first Saw movie and for the franchise in general. This one does feel dated watching it now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially with the editing style. All of those speed ramps just felt silly at this point. Yeah. I will we- say that I watched Saw 2 first in the franchise when I was very young. And then I, w- I didn't watch the original Saw until uh, fairly recently, about a year or two ago. And and yes, it is very dated in that respect. But I was, I was very caught off guard by the minimalism and the actual like decent detective telling uh, of the story and how little gore there was that it surprised feels, me it feels like a real investigation like they're actually doing detective work yeah they do really clever stuff with it like danny glover is the main detective we we see the original other traps that jigsaw has laid like one guy is stuck in a maze of barbed wire has to get escape the room before the time's up yeah, like, like I said, these all feel like something that with enough effort somebody could actually set up. They're elaborate, but they don't feel out of the realm of realism, you know? It feels like this is something that, that could happen. It suspends your disbelief fairly well, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I oh, I want to talk about the red herring with okay. uh, Michael Emerson as Zepp. Um, he, uh, like, kidnaps Lawrence's family, and for the entire beginning section of the movie we think like he's the killer because he's watching this footage on the computer and he seems to like enjoy having these people under his control yeah like when he first kidnaps them and uh he's using like lawrence's stethoscope or whatever to like listen to the little girl's heartbeat and it like goes up as he points a gun at the mom like it feels like he's he's really enjoying this and i will say I think that is kind of weird considering we find out at the end that he's not the actual killer and that he's just as much a pawn in the game as everybody else. Like, his en- his enjoyment at, like, torturing Lawrence's family is a bit weird to me, with with the ending of the film in mind. I know it was misdirection, but at the same time, it <laughs> it, it still felt pretty strange. Yeah, we find out at the end that the dead body in the center of the bathroom is not actually a dead body. It's just John Kramer pretending to be dead so he can monitor the entire game from within the room. The first time I saw this, like like I said, that was mind-blowing to me. And I still think that the way they do the reveal at the end is still pretty effective. Like I classic. I, yeah, I think it I think it holds up pretty well. Now see, I'd have to actually disagree with you on that one. I mean, you could be expecting that Zepp isn't actually the killer, but you aren't thinking of them popping up and revealing anyone else in those last couple minutes. And I think that there are a few moments that if I was not a kid, I probably would have realized more of the holes. I mean, especially in the first scene when you see Adam waking up in the bathtub, Jigsaw tells him at the end of the movie that the key was in the bathtub the entire time. First off, how was he ever supposed to figure that out? Because it's illuminated with a blue light, so audiences could later tell that something went in the sinkhole. If I was a more active viewer, I probably would have known, all right, that's going to come into play later on in the film. 
Yeah, the key thing at the beginning was kind of weird to me. The whole idea of Jigsaw's traps are they're winnable games. And if you immediately have an unwinnable game... Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily unwinnable because he may not have necessarily unplugged the bathtub drain and the key would not have necessarily gone down it. Like, he woke up and his foot caught on the chain and it pulled the plug and so the bathtub drained. But isn't that ridiculous too? If the key hadn't gone down, then the game would have been over in the first three minutes that he would have been awake. It would have been, oh, there's a key in this tub. I'm free. (laughs) May, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, but then we don't know if he would have been able to necessarily get out of the room. This film definitely has holes in it, but oh, sure. I feel like they're all suspension of disbelief holes as opposed to the many of the other films where they're just elaborately convoluted. I think the key in this one is that there's enough plausible misdirection that if the viewer is really tuned in, then yeah, they might figure some things out that others might not. But there's so much going on and there's so many red herring and stuff that unless you're really, really focusing on things like the sound of Jigsaw's voice when Danny Glover like almost catches him later, the key, stuff like that, it still can effectively take you by surprise at the end. Yeah, like being a big reader of Sherlock Holmes stories, in many ways, this film is better written than most of those. And the majority of like these Sherlock Holmes stories, Holmes disappears for a little while and then turns with, with the solution. So this movie was giving you a good deal more than any of these like original detectives stories uh, in that, and I, I do give it credit for that, for sure. Like, as a detective film, it's not bad. I wouldn't say it's ever a smart movie. I don't think any no. of the Saw movies are really smart movies, but this yeah, one definitely... is clever enough yeah. that you can give it, you know, that suspension of disbelief a lot of the time. I think you hit Easily the nail the on the head. the smartest of the Saw films. I think yeah, you hit well the nail on that. the head. It's clever, but it's not smart. There's definitely mm-hmm. a difference. It's clever enough to, to keep you guessing and to lead you around some twists and turns without being like a like a really genius idea or script you know in this one too a lot of the dialogue is pretty fucking bad the acting for the most part is pretty fucking bad carrie elwes's accent swims in and out constantly especially when he's yelling danny glover is great but danny glover is playing danny glover so i don't know what what more you (laughs) what more you would ask from that lethal weapon saw edition yep you know it's it definitely dates itself especially like you said ben with the fucking uh speed ramping a lot of the editing that sort of like green filter that's over everything definitely has that like early 2000s grim edgy vibe to it you know it has that same like grimy look that a lot of like new metal music videos have yep. Now, the other day, Eugene and I actually watched the the short film that this was based on, and it's bad. Really? It's really, really bad. How and so? They, they actually do that. That speed ramping is Ooh. in the short film itself, and so I wondered, did they create that? I mean, was Saw the thing that jump-started that kind of video editing? Because if so, shame on them. That's They right. made a very bad thing come to life. Well, also, like, it's it's definitely a product of its time because I never thought anything about that kind of speed ramping, like, during the 2000s. It's only at this point 
point where we don't see it much outside of like Zack Snyder movies. Yeah, that... it's pretty prevalent in like Tool music videos and stuff too. I'm not sure what the the time. Yeah, that's true. That like be, late but... '90s, early 2000s, like that kind of thing was prevalent, and it didn't feel out of place then. But it definitely feels out of place now, and that's one of those yes. things that that dates this as like this is an early 2000s movie. The the sense that I got from the short film is like it felt a lot like uh like a student film that i would have belittled had anybody shown <laughs> it in one of my film classes like the acting is garbage it's essentially just uh the reverse bear trap as its own little short wow. film one thing I want to touch on before we get into, uh, you know, ratings is I want to get political for a second and talk about the ideas of this movie because it came out pretty uh, soon after 9-11 and around the time we were starting to go into full-on war on terror, you're with us or against us mode. And in some ways, I see the idea of the jigsaw killer making these traps and torture devices to make people people appreciate life sort of justification for some of the torture we were doing abroad it's kind of disturbing looking back on it in a way because uh we, we like probably the esque like yeah the, scenes. yeah uh, I because, because you know it kind of makes jigsaw not necessarily benevolent but everything he does has a purpose he tries to justify it with an ethical explanation what is it he says to Hoffman and I think like four or five, like killing is distasteful or something? Oh, yeah, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, because yeah. Hoffman sets up like an unwinnable trap or something and Jigsaw yep. goes off on Pendulum. how like, yeah, on how killing is distasteful. Yeah, even though there are several times where Jigsaw presents unwinnable games. Yes. Yeah, it's it's all just kind of this backwards sense of ethics that I thought was very cool as a teenager, but now it yeah. just is so fucking corny. But I agree with you, Ben. It almost does feel like sort of a, a justification of torture, and that's really what kickstarted the this torture porn genre that was so prevalent in the following years. Like, the United States was torturing the shit out of people at Guantanamo and trying to justify it as, oh, well, if we get the information we need from these people, then the country will be safe. You're with us or you're against us. Well, that's the interesting thing, too, because, you know, the torture porn genre kind of died off by the end of the Bush presidency. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah, we're seeing it start to come back. I wonder if we'll get more of that in a Trump presidency. But I think it's one of those things where the meaning will be a little different because, you know, we've been through this once. I think, or at least I hope people will, you know, look at it with a little bit more self-awareness. I mean, you see some of that in Hostel. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I, I hope if we get more torture porn, it's satirical and it's not just justifying terrible acts in reality. Yeah, I mean, I could almost see, like, especially the first Saw film as as commentary on it and showing that as much as they do idolize Jigsaw, he is portrayed as a villain. He is the killer who needs to be caught and that his justification is not right. It's, yeah. a, it's a stretch, but... And then by the sequels, it just turns into glorifying John Kramer. Yeah. Yeah, he I, is a, a prophet right. in many ways. What I do want to talk about, too, is the impact that this movie had on the horror genre and how things might have been different without it. I was just reading earlier today, initially when this movie was picked up, 
to be a feature, it was just going to be like a little indie film. It was not going to get a wide cinematic release. And then it started testing really well with audiences, and they decided, hey, maybe we should give this a theatrical release. And I mean, obviously, we see what that has done now, that it spawned seven sequels at this point. And I think the Saw franchise is like really one of the defining horror genres of the previous decade. Well, um, it... As you mentioned, James Wan, I mean, I think what we do have now, the Insidious series is still going on. They're coming out with a new movie this Truth. year. Oh, yeah. And That's right. The Annabelle movies are oh, also God. things being made. Yeah. So. They're trying to turn the uh, Conjuring into like sort of like a mega franchise. God only knows what we're, what we're going to see in the future now with the Saw franchise, whether this new movie is really going to uh, kickstart several more sequels or if they're going to say, well, we did one more one-off. It didn't do super great. Like, let's just lay the whole thing to rest. I guess we'll see. Let's go ahead and rate the original Saw. Um, I'll start off. I think this movie, while there's certainly elements that are dated, a lot of the the things they do and the approaches they take are very clever. I like the minimalism of just being in the bathroom for so long and just being with the characters as they discover how to get out of the room and they find more and more clues. And I thought the detective stuff was really good with Danny Glover. Certainly not a perfect movie, but it is the best of the Saw franchise. Though I, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Saw 2. I, I love that movie a lot. I like Saw um, 2 as well. I would give this movie a, a three and a half out of five. I'm gonna echo that pretty spot on. It definitely has not aged super well, and the uh, the problems with it are far more blatant now than they used to be, but the journey it takes you on is still pretty entertaining. Like you said, the minimalism is good. It's much more grounded in reality than the vast majority of the sequels. I think the ending is still pretty effective, at least for me, even after all these years, so I'm gonna give it a three point five as well. I have watched all the soft films. I don't know if I'd really consider myself a fan after a certain point. Especially a lot of the later sequels, they just became very obnoxious. This movie started it all. I mean, I think the fact that it had a low budget allowed for them to have to just be minimal, and it certainly works to its benefit. That's a good point you bring up. This movie was made for just over a million dollars, which I think is pretty significant. Right, and so looking at the short film and how that led into the feature film, it's easier to understand or to accept a lot of the flaws because you know that it came from a very scrappy place and was able to become a giant. You have to have a certain type of taste to enjoy this movie, certainly, but I would give it a three out of five. It ditto essentially everything you've all said. I think that this film definitely gets points for originality. It, it might suffer in the rest of those regards. My surreal rating is going to be seven comparisons to the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, my, my legit rating would probably be a four, actually. I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give it a little bit past a 3.5. I'll, oh, wow. I'll say four. 
for right. it. I, I enjoy what it does and how it what it sparked for the franchise. Well, that gives us a average rating of 3.5 pods. Ben and I are right on the same page. Eugene a little lower, Cleveland a little higher. But I think we're all pretty much on the same page with that. All right, you guys uh-huh. ready to move on? Yeah, yes. let's talk about Hostel. Yes, let's. Hostel is a 2005 horror movie directed by Eli Roth. It's about two American law students who travel abroad to uh, have a crazy time and sleep with lots of European women. But they meet some Slavic guy who tells them that they should go to Slovakia because there's a hostel there. They can sleep with the most beautiful women. Being the horny Americans they are, they go to Slovakia on this train. Shit goes awry, I guess you could say. Yeah, this movie is really uh, interesting because it starts almost like an American Pie movie. You have like these super obnoxious American frat bro kind of guys. It's a lot like fucking Deuce Bigelow, European Gigolo at the beginning. Um, Harold and Kumar. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Just like Ben said, the most obnoxious, stereotypical American dudes traveling through Europe, being ignorant, being rude, and just trying to sleep with as many European babes as they possibly can. Which I I generally have a problem with, and it's I could say the same thing for a lot of the Saw franchise too, and that's that they so very often with these slasher films portray people that you don't like, so you're practically rooting for the killer when they're getting chopped to bits. Yeah, no, I, I, Eugene and I were actually just talking about this exact same thing before we started recording today, but I think, I, I totally agree with you, in a lot of movies it's frustrating, it's like, ugh, why does everybody have to be just the fucking worst? Like, can't somebody that I care about get killed and, like, actually make me feel something? But I think it works so well in this movie that everybody is just a generic stereotype. And I love how it starts out as sort of like a a hedonistic American vacationing in Europe movie, but then at a certain point it takes a dramatic turn and becomes like a a slasher horror torture movie. You know, I'm inclined to agree with you on that. I think when I say that like I would love for just once to see a relatable character in a film, uh, I do think that this isn't the film for it. And what they did here was fine. So yeah, I'll, I'll throw that out yeah and it's it's a fun comment on you know american tourists how like a lot of times americans when they travel abroad all their morals and manners just go out the window and that sort of sense of like american superiority that everybody who they come into contact with in europe should be like beholden to them because they're americans they carry that sort of sense of entitlement and i mean of course this is stereotypical and not necessarily represent of Americans, but what I love is that this movie sets a precedent early on that these people are stereotypes. I guess the part, the only bit that I really resented was it made me feel like that too. Uh, especially during the one shot when they check into the new hostel and there's the secretary behind the counter and she turns around to grab something off the wall and the camera starts at head level, pans down to her ass and then pans back up to her face when she turns back around. And it's like, man, now I feel like a sleaze ball <laughs> while but, watching this movie. But what's great, Which, ab- what's great about it, I think, is that there's definitely some reciprocity on the other side of it. Yeah, the, the Americans yeah. feel very stereotypical, but 
so do all the Europeans. It, this movie is like Americans are scum, American tourists are scumbags. Everybody in Europe is a sex pervert. There's like no in between. <laughs> Everybody in this movie is terrible on both sides. There's nobody good in this movie. Yeah. The two characters, they're pretty awful. Like, they're constantly calling people retarded and... And gay. And that was, gay, that, yeah. That was something that really dated it, is like, oh man, that's so fucking retarded. That's so fucking gay. It's like, yeah, these are Americans in the year 2005. Like, it fits so well, I think. And it and it makes everybody so hateable. And even the, the two Americans, you have, like, the one who is all about, like, sleeping with as many women as possible. And then he has his more sensitive friend who's, like, dealing with a breakup and, like, doesn't want to pay for prostitutes or anything like that. Yeah, I thought that they were setting him up to be the primary character with the having a girlfriend back home. Yes, and, absolutely. And I, like, and showing that he, he was still a douchey bro, but he cared a little bit more. And, like, that's where I was a little surprised uh, by where the film went from there. And that's what, I love, that's what I love about it, too, is it sets the sensitive guy up to be the hero, but then he's the one who gets killed off and his douchey frat bro friend is the one who ends up being the hero they're on the train to slovakia some european dude sits down next to them and he starts eating salad with his hands and they're like yo what are you doing and he's like i like to connect to what i eat and then he like grabs the the sensitive dude's leg like, yeah, way high up on the thigh, yeah. like, super close to his junk. And then he freaks out. Maybe a little too much freaking out, but, like, it was a little past believable, but yeah. Well, no, I, I actually thought that was pretty believable because it just keys into the same thing we were talking about before. With, like, oh, dude, that's fucking gay. Don't touch my thigh, man. Right, you know, like, like outward homophobia. Yeah. And what I like, too, about this movie is, like, as stereotypical as all the characters are, every now and then you get this, like, little touch of realism where they start to feel like a real character, and then that's just sort of, like, taken away it's like oh is this a real person nope still just a stereotype and they do some really clever uh setups and payoffs before we get into some of that though i want to talk about their icelandic friend oli oli hashtag free oli he was my favorite yeah. i wanted him to be the hero i agree with that yeah he was certainly much more interesting than any of the other characters i like how he was just like a stranger that they like agreed to have tag along with them yeah just like an icelandic drifter that they met in like france or something and then he just sort of yeah. like tagged along with them he was so over the top and uh i fucking love how he kept saying of course my horse that was yes that was my favorite of course my horse oh yeah i thought that <laughs> shit was so fucking funny yeah because if i heard that from someone like someone say that to me i'd be like wait i'm a horse in this metaphor should i be offended but it's so weird i don't think i can afford to be like, yeah it's a great it's a great expression of course my horse very off-putting <laughs> <laughs> But they get to Slovakia and they go to this hostel and they meet these very attractive women that are like immediately subservient to them. The honeypot. The yeah. honeypot. And so we find out that everybody at this hostel is in on this sort of conspiracy to kidnap 
tourists and then wealthy uh, businessmen and stuff from around the world come in and pay top dollar to be able to indulge their torturous desires on these prisoners. Well, the great part is we don't great re- we don't realize that it's wealthy people right away. Right. They they withhold that that reveal to. We don't realize that it's just mo- even multiple killers at the beginning. I was really impressed by that twist because I I only watched the film two nights ago and I had never I never knew that about Hostel. I always just assumed there was one killer. They set you up to think that for a large portion of the film and finding out that it's a massive organization really effective, very powerful. I yeah. was I was rest. The way they show the torture at first is very minimal. I was talking about this when we were watching it. They showed just very very brief glimpses of the torture and leave a lot to the imagination. Eventually they they do get pretty graphic with it. I'm thinking about like the eyeball and like the pus coming out of the the chick's face. Oh my and god. Stuff. That's going to that's going to hit me for a long time. I was not expecting that at all. The eyeball being cut off was enough for me and then the the pus I just that was totally out of the blue. I did not think that was going to happen. That might be one of like the peak like scenes in gore films that have like actually like churned my stomach like they're supposed to and really hit me. But Ben brings up a great point as how it starts off extremely minimal and then it ramps up. That way there's always like this escalation. It doesn't set a super gratuitous precedent right off the bat and then it just sort of yeah. becomes desensitizing at a certain point because it's like, okay, well it's been gratuitous and gross from the beginning. It really really ramps up to that when you get the the first torture scene you're you always wonder like well are they gonna do it all like this and just leave it up to the imagination but no as they continue throughout the movie they keep showing more and more and more until at a certain point they're not holding anything back i love the tonal shift that it has to you know uh it's first you know introduced kind of offhandedly when the main character is at the hostel uh and there's like a foreign movie on tv and he's like where are the fucking subtitles i can't understand this if there's no subtitles we immediately think oh yeah he's just being an ignorant american and so once he's captured we're still kind of rooting for the killers because we're in that mindset of these guys are assholes and right as he's getting tortured, the the guy who kidnaps him is, like, German. The hero, he uh, starts speaking German back. And the whole time, we don't get any subtitles. So it's kind of a reversal on that no subtitles idea because it puts the audience in that same situation in a lot of ways because we don't understand what they're talking about. Now you're the American pie douche. Yeah. Right, exactly. I thought that was a really fun little little thing they did to have him make a comment about there not being subtitles and then to do the same thing to the audience later Mm -hmm. on. He uh, gets a ball gag and puts it in his mouth and then continues (laughs) torturing him so he can't talk. Um, yeah, the, the shock vomiting was, was like points for realism on that because every character who ends up getting tortured like goes into shock and vomits. And that mm-hmm. was that was solid. Yeah, and so then he has to pull the ball gag out of the guy's mouth so he doesn't choke on his vomit and then goes to get the chainsaw. <laughs> and then when he comes back, he slips on the ball gag and <laughs> the chainsaw lands on him. I, I love that. that. I love that too. It, Perfect kind of juices. Perfect kind of twist, obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, just the the right type of deus ex machina that that we needed. He does succeed in cutting off two of 
the guy's fingers first. And that's another little touch that I thought was really excellent is that when he escapes, the first thing he tries to do is he stops to pick up his severed fingers to take them with him. The funniest part about the ball gag scene was we see him like slowly try to escape and the whole time you're thinking, oh yeah, he's gonna like get out of the trap or on his own or just be killed. And then it just pulls it out from under you and like has the the killer killed on his own by accident. (laughs) But I I honestly, I felt that was so dumb. I just don't feel like it's effective in any way. Sure, it's not the way you expected him to get out of there, but I don't think it means it's any better than the alternative of him finding an escape. I oh, I, I was oh, not a huge I fan disagree. of this movie. Yeah, so. I completely disagree. Yeah, I disagree. Yeah, I, I thought I thought that it, it added a um, wonderful surprise. I just I did not see that coming at all. Yeah, and it that, looked it looked like because the chair it's so, was going to break. In many ways, it's like, so that goofy. The entire premise is about taking the rug out from under you. Every creative or uh, story choice that they made with like it starting out like Harold and Kumar, it, you know, it becoming a slasher film. You expect that like this character is the main character. It's actually the secondary character who becomes the hero and my favorite part is that instead of him escaping and getting captured again like every other one of these films he actually to spoil like the the last part he actually makes it out uh and gets his revenge and i was like oh shit there's actually like a not an uplifting turn but i didn't expect that even though that that organization is still out there but we'll we can go into that later yeah i agree with you cleveland i think this movie is really really great at subverting the audience's expectations it really does set things up to be much more of a generic film than it is. Like, it's it's going through and starting to hit all those tried-and-true plot points, and then right before it does, like, end up being predictable, it'll do something to totally, like, subvert your expectations. And I think that's one of the things that is so good about it. And it does do it in a lot of goofy ways, and that's so Eli Roth to me. Like, thinking of Cabin Fever, where it is a horror movie, but it's so fucking goofy and just hilarious. I I love that this like really dark, torturous slasher movie is still injected with humor. I th- I think there's some smart stuff in it too, and in, in the commentary because you know it goes from this generic fear of torture slash foreigners to kind of a comment on the dangers of the excess of wealth in capitalistic societies. You know, when people can get so much money that they don't even care about, you know, having tons of sex with random people and buying stuff, you know, what what's next? What what else can you turn to? Right. No longer getting satisfaction from being rich and having everything at your fingertips. Like where do you go to get that next thrill? And for this it's turning to torturing and killing people to feel alive. And I think that's a I think it's a good comment. Yeah. Yeah, these are like, comments that have been made in movies. I mean, especially something like 120 Days of Sodom. I mean, that's most of the focus of the film, just these men in power using that power to do what they please. I feel like the movie is trying to make a comment. It's just not doing it in a very uh, effective way for me. And it doesn't feel very smart. It's delivery. I am not a huge fan of the goofiness mixed with the seriousness. It made it feel immature more than anything else to me. 
But don't you feel like it would have been worse if it had just been played super straight, like Saw is, and that it's people getting tortured in Eastern Europe? Like, I think I think the reason that the premise works is because of how, I guess, grindhouse it is. Like, the yeah. influence of grindhouse films is, like, really, really apparent in this movie. And I think that... Yeah, helps- I think that that sense of duality was, was really important with yeah. the, the comedy and the horror. Well, I, I think my problem is is I don't know if this movie works for me. I was not a huge fan, and I'm not a huge Eli Roth fan. I have not seen Cabin Fever, did not enjoy The Green Inferno, and so while he is definitely making films as a callback to this point in time when movies like these were, were bigger, I just don't feel like it's a worthy venture. I don't think that it provides as much as some other people might see in it and it's okay for them to like it but i i did not enjoy it for either its message or just the characters or any of that my thoughts on that aspect of showing like the how these these youths have being like straight white males they're the world is laid out for them no matter where they travel they're going to get laid they're going to get what they want and seeing those those expectations inverted by other straight white males that can get anything that they want out of the world just higher up the food chain i thought that was very powerful but no it's not the focal message of the movie it's a motif and I, I think I would prefer it as a motif if, if it, the movie was called capitalism and not hostile I would probably feel differently that way but I would much rather see hostile and have those themes exist within the film as opposed to seeing them take the like be hand slapped in the face with those motifs I agree with you Eugene that the green inferno was pretty underwhelming I was not the biggest fan of that but what I like about Eli Roth is every movie he makes is very much an homage to a different film. Like, Cabin Fever plays off of a lot of the same stuff that, like, The Evil Dead does. Hostel plays off a lot of the stuff that, like, Saw does. The Green Inferno plays off of what Cannibal Holocaust did. To varying degrees of success, I I do think that The Green Inferno, probably the worst Eli Roth movie I've seen. I haven't seen all of his stuff, but it was definitely the least effective for me. As much as I love Hostel, I don't think it's as effective as Cabin Fever is. But that being said, Cabin Fever is even goofier than Hostel is. It It's way more satire. And I think The Green Inferno is way less satire, and that's partially why it doesn't work as well. Like, Hostel's kind of like the middle ground for me. There's a lot of, like, gags that I thought worked pretty well, too. Like, I'm thinking about when his fingers are cut off and they fall off the cart and he's, like, struggling to pick up the fingers <laughs> with his, his his two remaining fingers. I thought that stuff was nice uh, visual humor. I liked that, too. A lot of the gags are just, like, the, the flow of, of the action in that latter half of the film, um, complete with the soundtrack, which I did definitely do want to bring up. Felt almost like an Indiana Jones movie. You know, like, American character in a foreign land, you know, like, trying to escape from this dungeon-esque scenario. And the music really reinforced that to me. It was, like, very little dissonance being used. It was, like, live orchestral soundtrack stuff that really, I don't think, would have gone out of place in an Indiana Jones film. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. It was very uh, action movie-y in terms of the score, which I, I think worked pretty well, too, especially in the later stuff after he escapes and all of these uh, 
these corporate henchmen or whatever are coming after him. All of your generic Slavs in leather jackets and gold chains. Yeah, like a, a post-industrial soundtrack would have probably been more on point, but I think that, it, again, adds to what makes this film very much so its own thing for as derivative as it could also be seen. We can't go without mentioning the, the kids. Oh, yeah, the the <laughs> roving street children who will... Uh, the urchins. Yeah, who, the, the street urchins <laughs> yeah. who will attack you for your money and are apparently willing to commit murder for candy. <laughs> I love how... Yeah, like, that was the most elaborate thing. Yeah, he just... he As he's escaping from the henchmen, he just gives the, the gang of street children a whole bag of candy and they stop and murder the henchmen who are following them. It's just like, wow, these little Slovakian street urchins really, really fucking love candy, I guess. Like, they're they're treated, like, script-wise, like, less like children and more like goblins or, or like, trolls. Like, yeah, they was, really are. So they're Slovakian children, so they must be, like, trolls. <laughs> they have to pay, like, a candy toll to get there. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> you gotta pay the troll toll, otherwise you're gonna get murdered by Slovakian children. Okay, Eugene, what did you think of, like, the slow reveal after he was, like, drugged in the the bar and he wakes up in, like, the back room and after that he goes back to the hostel... Realizes. You're talking about when he realizes that yeah, there's something Yeah, because I feel like on. it was kind of a slow reveal. And I thought it was kind of intelligently done. It was Well, you know. certainly the 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 growth of him going back to the hotel room, there are two other women there that are acting the same way as the two women previously. I I I thought that was that was alright, that they're showing sort of the the plans and the methods of these people. Uh, again, I think my my problem with this film is that the the goofiness of it mixed with the torture scenes or the seriousness trying to be serious or if it's trying to be goofy, I think it doesn't find a very comfortable area. Sure. Because for all of the dumb stuff in it, it just it's hard for me to take this any other way than a silly movie. Nothing really has an effect on me in that way. Well, what's wrong with a silly movie? Well, there's nothing wrong with it. It just means that it's pretty shallow, at least to me. Well, I would... I see what you mean. So you feel like, Eugene, you feel like that the, uh, the comedy sort of broke the fourth wall for you and put you outside of the character's scenario. Is yeah, you could put it that way that I, I no I, I longer that. felt. Well, I guess my my follow-up question for that is how do you feel about a movie like Hot Fuzz? That is definitely a comedy, but it's played very straight and it's dark and it's really violent and extremely gory. I look at Hostel as sort of a black comedy in the same vein as Hot Fuzz, whereas Hot Fuzz is definitely more overtly funny and trying to be funny, I sort of would group them together to different degrees, well, I think. Well, I think the problem then is I think Edgar Wright is just a much better screenwriter. Eli Roth, I I don't find that. And I think that's where the immaturity comes in, where I don't feel like any idea is delivered very well. So do you think that it might have worked better for you if it was goofier? If they really pushed the comedic aspect of it beyond just sort of these little gags? It could go either way. I mean, as you say, Cabin Fever is better than this, 
and that goes way goofier. Yes. So maybe I would have enjoyed it more in that sense. Hostel rides the line. And I think uh, that's where my issue comes in is I am not a fan of how it's riding the line. It I'm needs not... to go one way or another right. for you. Okay, that's fair. I think it finds a good balance, but that's just for me at least. Yeah, yeah I'm inclined to agree with, with Tease on this front, but I, I also recognize that like it's it's very preference-based at that point, and I, I think that like that's a totally reasonable perspective to have on the film, Eugene. I want to emphasize that I thought the horror in the movie was very visceral. I think of the scene with yeah. the sensitive kid that gets his Achilles tendons cut, and he's trying to escape, where you like see him fall, and his Achilles tendons are all fucked up. That was legitimately pretty creepy. It's a horror a film ways, first, yeah. and then it has comedic elements. Unlike Hot Fuzz, which I would definitely see as a comedy film first with yes. horror elements. I agree. The The horror feels very real. Like you mentioned Cleveland with how everybody who's being tortured like immediately vomits. That's not something that you see in a lot of other horror movies. And the, the violence and the pain is palpable, I think. And in that way, it, it's really effective. Like, it makes you squirm, it makes you cringe, like, you feel it in the pit of your stomach, and like, holy shit, I would not want to be in this situation. Whereas with a lot of other horror movies, even uh, Saw, to an extent, you're kind of distanced from the actual horror, you know? I, I can see how riding the line can be its undoing, but at the same time, it's one of the few things in the movie that kept those visceral horror scenes from feeling gratuitous to me because I think if they were played straight they would feel a little excessive to the point of you know straight faced exploitation and but while that I, that makes you feel something it, it's not rewarding towards the ideas that are being uh, expressed in the movie it's just being excessive I think even then cheaply. all of the torture scenes are played straight except of course for the ball gag uh, and that problem with teetering the line is that it can begin goofy that's fine I was enjoying it for that but it needed to take a more dramatic shift near the end of the film so that once all of this stuff ramped up, you actually felt it instead of it still just being exploitational and silly. I do, I do think that like some of the latter, the gore and stuff was was did feel more exploitational than anything else. Especially considering like the guy was like dressing up as the enemy guys to get out of there. Which I mean, that's not an unreasonable thing to do. It's just again, it's a very Indiana Jones thing to do or Star Wars thing to do. It did sort of make like again that eyeball scene just really out there. <laughs> I was before we move on to our final film. I do want to talk about the very end of this movie, the callback when he manages to escape. He gets on the train, he's safe, and then he hears somewhere down the row that same guy from the train at the beginning who was one of the torturers telling somebody his same spiel about eating with his hands because we've lost uh, a connection to our food. So he follows him off the train and, like, almost drowns him in the toilet and slits his throat. I think that's a, a really fun uh, callback and a good way to end it. Like, even after he's gotten away, he still goes out of his way to, to get vengeance on the person who killed his friend. 
Now, did you notice that he cut his throat the same way that the guy cut his friend's throat? You know, I actually you, did not notice that. It does. It mirrors that kill scene when he, you know, standing behind him holding his hair back and ma- forcing him to watch in the mirror as he slits his own throat. And it does it the exact same way to his friend. So it mirrors that scene. That, that first is... kill scene. That's actually really cool. I did not yeah. catch that. Good on you, Cleve. Yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. I, Are one you... thing I do have to say oh. is I did feel like the Japanese girl killing herself by jumping in front of a train was a little racist. Uh, I said that. I yeah. Ask them. I said I that when we were watching <laughs> that movie. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, of course the Japanese girl's going to commit suicide by train. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> right. That, that was the one point. Because like, I think the, the portrayal of Eastern Europe, the portrayal of the Americans was all sort of justified in the end as commentary. But the, the Japanese girl killing herself by train was not and oh. i do i do think it was kind of bullshit i so i agree I, with you okay yeah before we get into audition then let's uh rate this quick i'll start on this one uh i think i've made my feelings on this movie pretty clear so i'm not gonna backtrack too much i think it's a solid solid movie good entry into the torture porn subgenre. reminds me a lot of grindhouse films which i really like and makes sense considering that it's an eli roth movie produced by quentin tarantino i'm gonna give it solid four out of five I I enjoy this movie a lot. Yeah, I I think it does some really smart things. It's very clever. I really, really like this movie. The first time I watched it was like four or five years ago. I didn't remember liking it a ton. I, going back to it, you know, it does a lot more than you would think at face value. Going into a movie like this, you expect dumb exploitation. And it does more than that with it. And I, I really appreciate that. I thought the comedy was pretty funny in it. I thought the the satire was pretty on point. Um, yeah, I would get this a four and a half out of five. All right. Well, I made myself clear, I think, on my views. I was looking for Hostel to try and lean any direction to create something more than what I felt was just silliness with gore and a message which never really hits as well as it should. The pieces are all there, but I feel like it loses itself and all of its goofiness. So for me, I'm going to have to give it a two out of five. Cleveland? I would say I'm going to give it seven heralds out of Kumar. Uh... (laughs) No, I, I, for real though, I, I'm gonna give it. Uh, I, I'm gonna go with Ben. I think uh, four point five. This this kind of genre um, isn't really my thing. Generally, uh, I mean, as much as like I had to say about like the nuances of Saw, I'm not a fan of the franchise overall. I was just trying to do my homework for this podcast, and these sorts of films, I I've watched them fairly regularly, but they're not usually my choice for the evening i'll go with a sci-fi film but this one really did it for me it hit a lot of good points well that gives us an average rating of 3.75 for hostile which i think is pretty good all right so our final film that we'll be talking about as a group is audition uh by takashi miike eugene do you want to tell us a little bit a bit about audition yes i do well audition came out in 19 1999. It is considered a precursor to a lot of 
movies in the torture porn genre. Eli Roth has talked about his influence from audition on the movie Hostel. Takashi Miike actually makes a cameo in Hostel as well. He is one really? of the patrons. Yes. When he is first about to walk in, that man that tells him to watch out because you'll lose all your money in there, oh, that's Takashi no Miike. Oh, shit. That's, that's awesome. fucking awesome. I had that's no idea. Bad. That torture and that violence works to a very, very effective level in this film. It is about two hours long. It's a very slow burn. Nothing violent happens until maybe about the last 15, 20 minutes, but everything that leads to it, for me, just makes it so much stronger. In Hostel, I will agree that I admire that they did not go all out immediately. They wanted the violence to ramp up. With this, it's not preparing you for what is about to happen, but it's planting the seeds for something more sinister than what we're given. So the story is about a widower named Ayoma. His wife passed away seven years ago. He has a teenage son who out of the blue one day tells him that he should consider remarrying because he sees his father is lonely and would like to see him with somebody else. Ayoma is talking with a friend of his who is in the film business and brings up the idea of an audition for a wife So they use the ruse of a screenplay that they are looking for actresses, and that is actually for Ioma to try and find his perfect wife. And that's when he meets Asami, who has him enraptured. He's obsessed with her. She has a background in classical ballet. She's very quiet, calm, well-natured, that's attractive to him, and so he wants to try and make her his wife. As he gets to know her, and his friend begins to look into her background, all of these very strange things start to pop up. There's a moment when they are together at this hotel. It's assumed that they slept with each other. It's not very clear. She makes him promise that he will love her and only her like no one else. He agrees. And then in the morning, she's disappeared. That part of the film is him digging further into her past. And that's when he begins to realize more of the dark, twisted moments in her childhood that, as we see in the end of the film, turn her into a monster. I love how much of a slow burn it is to that point. Yes. You know? I think uh, it was a a textbook perfect slow burn. I didn't know anything about this film going into it, and I'm really glad that I didn't. Uh, If you're a fan of horror, the the delivery is is marvelous, and the exposition is very Japanese in that, or very Eastern, in that it's explorative, and you don't know what's coming next and you're thrown into this this world of confusion as as details are revealed to you and especially in that dreamlike state you have a um, unreliable narrator and you just don't know what facts to trust i i love that and how like for somebody who doesn't know shit about it and goes into it only knowing that it's a horror movie it doesn't even present itself as a horror movie until, it's pretty light for the first half until well yeah. over an hour into the movie like up till that point it's sort of like a melodrama like a romance you know like a lonely guy looking for his soulmate or whatever after in, the death of his wife in a very strange way i oh, mean yeah. that sort of premise 
premise would be out of oh, place for yeah. a romantic comedy, anything like that. That I mean, it's certainly a. Uh, it's kind of sleazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very it's manipulative. A sleazy method. It's very sleazy. Yeah, I I felt like it was in, incredibly misogynistic, and I I feel kind of bad because like when I first started the film, the, those moments were being set up, and the way that he he treats like his, his like his son's girlfriend and the rest of it is like like women are very much so depicted as objects at the beginning of this film and i thought it was a cultural thing and i feel really bad about even saying that but i i totally thought that like it was the makers of the film being misogynistic and i was very very pleased to see that it was commentary by by the end of the film like, right I, well a country like Japan is very patriarchal that the men are the ones considered to be in power. And so certainly we have those same issues here in America, but that in a country like Japan, it's stronger and those sort of gender identities are more enforced or right. cer- it's definitely and amplified. Yeah, and, and I, that's right. definitely why I assumed that the it was not intentionally portrayed as misogyny when the film started and i didn't realize that they were like they were insidiously implying that it was misogynistic until much later on and and i think that it's what makes the film more powerful uh than hostile is that you know hostile's misogyny is very heavy-handed they're they're very sexist uh right off the bat these like traveling american tourists who just sort of expect women to sleep with them etc whereas in this film like you can almost laugh off the misogyny you can almost justify it and excuse it almost that i really liked i really liked that it much more true i think to how most misogyny is portrayed i think too that actually like right now this movie is almost more relevant than ever before because these two guys are tv producers they use their status (laughs) and their power to try to lure women into romantic relationships using a fake audition for a movie it's extremely weinstein-esque yeah the whole time i was watching it I, I was thinking, you know, if they made an Americanized remake of this today, it would feel on the nose. It would you know? be extremely yeah. on the nose, yeah. But that I just goes that. to show him that a movie that came out almost 20 years ago can still find relevance in today's social environment, you know? Yeah, if not be more relevant right. than before. And I yeah. and I think, I think that's what this movie does so well, is that even though Ioma is supposed to be, for the most part, a sympathetic character because, you know, he's lonely, misses his wife who died years ago. At the same time, he's also pretty, pretty fucking sleazy with the way he goes about trying to find himself uh, a new wife. He's complicit in his friend's misogyny. Yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Definitely. One of the most interesting parts of the film is its use of these very hallucinogenic or dream-like sequences, which just ramp up right around the end of the film. And a lot of that is used to provide a backstory on uh, Asami as well, which I find very interesting that that's how we're given information. And it certainly makes more of the information we are given misleading or harder to accept his full truth. One thing I find uh, as I read people's reviews and analysis of this film is that there is a divide on which parts 
are dreams and which parts are the reality. The line definitely becomes blurred, and it also becomes blurred in the sense of who is telling this story. Is it Ioma or is it Asami? Whose perspective is the movie really from? And it leaves a lot open to interpretation by the end, like what's real, what's not, is what happens to Ioma at the end a projection of his guilt over what he's been doing to Asami? Is it poetic justice? It, you know, really leaves a lot open to interpretation. And that's why I think is one of the things that's so successful about this movie. Well, it's funny that you say that because I remember reading that it got a lot of controversy from both sides when it came out. Uh, people argued that it was both a misogynistic film and a feminist film. The reading of that is entirely dependent on, you know, whose perspective you kind of see the film through. How perfect is that, too? I'm not surprised to hear that it had uh, people both debating whether it was a feminist or misogynistic film, and I think that that's that's how you do it right. This film did a lot of things right, and I would also say that it's probably the best depiction of a dream within a dream sequence that I've seen. To kind of go off on a slight tangent, I think another thing that makes this movie so impressive is that Takashi Miike is an extremely prolific filmmaker. He's made well over a hundred movies in his career. And this movie came out the same year as four other movies that he did. Good lord. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and it's still so solid. The interesting thing, too, about Takashi Miike's work is a lot of his other films don't have the escalation that this one has. I think of, like, Ichi the Killer. It has a lot of the same extremity as this movie, but it starts with the extremity and carries it through the whole film. It doesn't hold the same punch in the same way Audition does. Because Audition pulls the rug from under your feet, it has so much more power because you feel so much more connected to the main character and to see his suffering. Mickey makes very extreme, intense movies, but I think they're more effective from a horror standpoint and from, you know, an overall quality standpoint when we have the the opportunity to connect with the characters. You have an investment even though he shows very sleazy, very disgusting parts of his own views towards women, that he never does anything that turns him into a villain or anything of that matter. Well, yeah, and throughout the film, you kind of feel his loneliness. Lots of long takes where he's sitting there contemplating stuff. He well, that's, There's I a think, lot of vulnerability uh, in the characterization. Well, I think that's in many ways the purpose of his son as a character is to show that a lot of this misogyny and the, the patriarchal aspects of the society is inherited. Even though he does not commit that many acts himself, again, it's his friend most of the time, and he's just sort of brought into it because in many ways it's also what society expects of him. He remains complicit and it is an insidious misogyny instead of a of him just being an asshole villain. And it makes you be able to relate to him much more strongly. Because I think, uh, like, the four of us here are all straight white males. So I think we've all been in that scenario, like, growing up where we realized, oh, yeah, this thing that I thought was okay to do is incredibly sexist. And it's not all right to do that. And that makes it much more personal to me. Good people are also capable of misogyny, and that's what makes it 
so, to use a word, or like a fourth time insidious. Right. Well, it's also realistic too because like yes. the idea of black and white, good and evil is so unrealistic. Good people do bad things. Bad people do good things. There's shades of gray. It just feels so real that this guy is simultaneously sympathetic and also like kind of repulsive in what he's doing. It makes him feel like a like a real person. I think everybody yep. in this movie feels like a real person. Yeah, very relatable. Whereas Jigsaw does not do a good <laughs> job of that. <laughs> not at all. And I, so a- after those dream sequences near the end of the film, we finally get to the scene that anyone who has watched Audition or heard of Audition knows about. The scene that helped to create the torture porn genre and what makes it so effective again is the lack of any sort of violence or gore up until that point. Asami breaks into Ayama's house and drugs his whiskey. He gets paralyzed and then she pulls out a box of needles and in a very slow matter, very meticulous, we watch as she places each needle directly into his body, not just on his belly in a very sensitive area, also puts needles under his eyes. And it's one of those, you really feel that happen because they let you sit in it. Yeah, and talk about visceral. That whole sequence was some of the most visceral torture I've ever seen in any movie, honestly. Yeah, Yeah, like, especially the... The, um, the music producer who we see come out of the bag during around the same time of the film because like really all of that takes place in the last 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, like the last 15, 20 minutes. Like it, all of it. And it feels like the majority of the film, time just just elongates at that part when it, when it ramps up. Well, like you said in the dream where the the tortured producer or whatever comes out of the bag and she throws up into a dog bowl and, like, forces him to eat the vomit. Which Oof. turned out it was actual vomit yeah. that the actress used. Oh, yeah, she really? actually vomited into oh, a bowl. No. Did he actually eat it? Wait. That part I don't know. I'm not oh, sure. They didn't God. say anything about that. But... That's why oh, it looks so real. Yeah, yeah I oh, couldn't. No. I already couldn't handle that scene. That scene is probably one of those haunting things. It's like, hit me in, like, gore films. God damn. Knowing that, too. Oh, God. Well, on that note, let's talk about the first moment where we realize that something is really, really wrong with her. And that is even about an hour in, where Ioma is trying to, like, get over his nervousness and call her so he can ask her on a date. And we just see her sitting on the floor in her totally empty apartment with just a telephone and this big sack of something. And then the phone rings and the sack moves. And we realize that there is somebody in that bag. That is one of the most effective scenes in any horror movie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I agree fully. I loved it. I just was not expecting this movie to be as good as it was. Wow. 
Because when you see that sack, even if you assume that there's a person in there, once it moves and it's very sudden, that's when you realize, oh, that person is still alive. Right. I've seen this movie before um, as well, and the first time I saw it, I did not think there was somebody in that sack. Like, it's already weird enough that she's just, like, silently sitting on her floor in an empty apartment just with a telephone. Something's going on here. Like, what's this and then the phone rings and the sack like jerks up against the wall you're like fuck there's a living human being in that bag Ooh, it's uh, it, it gives me shivers even just like thinking about it and i like how we get that shot of after they sleep together or whatever like his feet sticking out from under the bottom of the covers it's almost like foreshadowing because then she cuts his feet right. off later yes. with yeah. like with piano wire too oh like, well looking really happy and having oh, a good time she's so gleeful about torturing him like that's another thing about that scene that makes it so good is like she just looks like she's having the time of her life right because we learn in her childhood that she was abused and mistreated her ballet instructor who seemed to be a very creepy perverted man he is the one responsible for these horrible long burns on her leg and so it seems at some point as a child the lines between pain and her pleasure because she loved ballet all of the violence that came with it as well just created this warped perspective in her mind and especially yeah, she's, men she's as well. so like a Frankenstein's monster of misogyny. Like she's just <laughs> this 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 horrible being that has been born, like that has been created out of all these like terrible men in her life, uh, and she's just this terrible, like this awful reflection of that. Loved it, loved right? Because it, really it goes to show this isn't a fault of anything in her own personality, but it's because of what's happened to her in her life that created the monster that we see in the film. And yeah. This is the point where, unfortunately, there are two, two goofy moments in this movie that I can remember. And, and that's when Asumi has a can of mace and she's chasing the sun around. Yes. He runs upstairs, he falls, and she runs up to him and starts spraying, but the kid kicks her, and she goes flying. It's not just gets knocked down. She zooms off of the stairs. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty goofy. And also, like, her actually trying to mace him. That was it silly. Looks, yeah, it so looks more like, I, I assume so, I, I thought, or something. I thought it was just, like, the world's shittiest chloroform. I, I was, I was <laughs> Well, yeah, it looks like, it's like a little cologne spritzer bottle. Like, it looks like yeah. she's trying to mist him with like cologne well, also, or something. Also, she's running at him spraying it, which means she's just crop dusting herself. Like, right, she's yeah. just, like, spraying... Most of it's just going back into her face while she's running. Like... No, that yeah, shit's that... that shit's super goofy, but it yeah. redeems itself really well after that, where she's kicked down the stairs, she breaks her neck, she's oh, dead. Oh. Even so, the dreamlike state continues with Ioma lying in the other room full of needles and with one of his feet missing, and he sees her lying there dead with a broken neck, and she's still talking to him. Totally yeah. unmoving otherwise, but making perfect eye contact and like speaking to him and i thought that totally redeemed the the goofiness of the mace or chloroform or whatever that was yes it was 100 percent. it was like still we... able to provide another unsettling image mm -hmm. and not leave you with the silliness of the death 
right yeah we we as the viewer were drugged alongside iomi like <laughs> we don't know when that happened to us it was just it just happens in the film and i loved that you don't know what he was drugged with still and i i think i've mentioned shock in some way like for every single one of these films but icing on the cake like this film portrays shock better than any other because in many ways i saw that dreamlike state as him falling into shock his brain trying to find like this happy place and he would just keep coming back around into this horror lucidity of what was actually going on around him as he was being tortured a really good movie all around i think if we've set our pieces we can head on straight to ratings yeah let's rate this I do have one last theme I think that we'd be doing a disservice to the film without bringing up, and that's sure. pianos and how Iomi's dead wife played piano and how it's used as a soundtrack throughout the whole film. Most of the time it's being played by someone in the background, including the creepy uh, ballet instructor. That's a good point you bring up, Cleveland. I, I had yeah. actually forgotten that, that his dead wife is a was a pianist. It means that she was sort of like the ghost soundtrack of the film. You realize it when when Asami starts using piano wire, that that's another sort of element that makes her almost a part of Iomi and Iomi's misogyny as well and what sort of ties her in as this almost metaphor to his own sexism. Oh, that's no, a very that's good a, point I'm make. glad you brought that up. Shall we rate it now? Yeah, that's all I had. All right, Cleveland, why don't you start this time? Sure. I uh, used to have a beagle in my apartment, so I'm going to give it 8.8 beagles out of one dead beagle. Oh, yeah, the the dog, Gangu. Gangu yeah, is killed, a good boy. Gangu. <laughs> time for walkies. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, God damn it! They're setting up the dog too much. The dog's gonna die. I, I, I wasn't keen on that, but uh, it was fine. Like the delivery was fine on they it. They didn't draw too much attention to it. Yeah, I would say a strong four point five, a very strong four point five. I'm not gonna give it a five, but Jesus, it was good. I will, I will mirror that exactly. Strong 4.5. Yeah, it does have some silly moments, but overall, for me, I will have to say 4.5 as well. There's not much I can say that hasn't already been said. This is a really good movie. It's definitely a slow burn for the majority of it, which I think is effective, but not for everyone. But I would still give it a solid 4.5. Alright, well that's unanimous then. I think that's the the first time we're all unanimous on, on a rating, so that's pretty cool. Very nice. All right. Um, before we get into Eugene's solo review, Ben, why don't you lead us in handing out some awards? All right. So uh, we have the Gorehound Awards. Of the movies we talked about, which one do you guys think was the most entertaining? That's an easy one for me. Hostile. I love the goofiness. I laughed so many times. I love Eli Roth. Yeah, I agree. It was very thoroughly entertaining. It's a very fun movie. I was not a fan of Hostile or its message, but out of all the movies we watched, it certainly did provide the most laughs and a good enough pace. You never felt too bored by anything, so I would have to say Hostile as well. Sweet. Okay, uh, scariest. I think we're also in consensus with right. this audition. audition for I, me. Yeah, that, it might, that might be the case for three and four, too, for I, me. I think... <laughs> 
Yeah, I think Audition, we can call it the scariest just because of the last, like, 20, 30 minutes of the movie. But even then, it sprinkles in a good amount of imagery. Yeah, sure. It is very melodramatic romance-driven at the beginning, and I think most people would be like, oh, this is a horror movie? What? This isn't scary at all. But by the end, it definitely has the most uh, unsettling moments and that really just make you cringe so yeah i think we're all in consensus on that audition yeah. scariest sweet okay next one uh best scene slash trap i'm also audition her flicking the needles when they're in his face fuck that man and her like sliding up on top of him when he's got all the needles in his stomach to me that was that was easily the most intense like i think that that even beat like the eyeball scene in hostel personally i'm gonna go with the whole torture scene of the main character in hostel we see the german guy start torturing him through the reveal that he also speaks german to the ball gag gag i i thought that whole scene was great just one of the best scenes in that movie honestly i'm gonna say also audition that first very very short scene where we see her in her apartment with the telephone and the sack it's a super short scene just lasts a few seconds but man is that fucking effective well, for me, this is a bit of a weird one. The bear trap actually speaks out to me a lot. I think out of all the traps in the movie, in the original film Saw, the bear trap still, to me, was cool enough that it sticks out, especially the fact that it was used in almost every other Saw film. That's my choice. Cool. We all had different ones. I love it. All right. So, yeah, but best... I think there's a the next one we can all agree on. Best overall film... Yeah. Audition. It's audition. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's definitely audition. As much as I love Hostel, Audition is the better <laughs> Is a better movie. movie. Yeah. I, I can agree I'm, with that. I'm on board with you, Ben. I want to say Hostel because I have so much fun with it, but Audition is definitely yeah. the best. And there's a reason we do most entertaining separately from best overall because... Different yeah, categories. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. Sure. So, Eugene, you lost uh, last week's game. And lose, and... I did. Uh, Matisse assigned you. He... he assigned me Texas Chainsaw 3D, which came out in 2012, 2013. This was another attempt at rebooting the Texas Chainsaw series. This movie starts off immediately after the events of the first movie. It begins with one of the police officers, the sheriff, coming to the house asking for Leatherface, the boy. A bunch of townspeople show up, start shooting, they start tossing Molotovs into the house. And so already, I'm pretty sure that discredits a lot of the events of the second to fourth movies they had yeah. in the original series. There is a baby that survives the fire and the attack. The baby's mother, we jump to the future, and the baby has grown up to be Alexandra Daddario. This is a baby that's picked up in the 70s, and the film goes into 2012-2013, except she's only about in her 20s. And so wh whatever timeline they're working with, it's, it's all over the place. It doesn't make sense. They're not even remaining consistent. They just didn't care. 
It was just a dumb oversight. Alexandra Daddario, she gets a letter from a grandmother she never knew she had. She was left stuff in a will that she's been given her grandmother's house. She realizes she's adopted from her parents who end up just being really shitty. And so she brings her friends over to this house. In the basement, we find out that Leatherface has been alive this entire time. He survived the fire. Alexandra Daddario and Leatherface are cousins. Uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, but it, it gets even better from that point <laughs> on because as her friends start getting murdered in horror fashion one by one, she gets picked up by the police. She starts sifting through all the evidence they have of the Sawyers. When she learns all of this, rather than thinking, oh, this whole family were, were, were shitty, awful people, cannibals, murderers, she scrolls murderers over the newspaper article, so it seems that she actually is on the side of the Sawyer family. Because the town people are, I guess, crazier than she feels the Sawyer family is. So even though she's displayed no psychopathic tendencies and did not know that she was related to these hillbilly murder cannibals, she just decides that, oh, I am related. Guess I might as well be one of them. Right. And even after, no motivation. after her friends have been murdered as well, she gets over that so quickly so that she could side with Leatherface. The police track her down. They use her as bait to try and capture Leatherface. She manages to escape while they're beating up Leatherface, and she actually comes to his rescue. She grabs the chainsaw, tosses it over to him, and says something along the lines of, Go get him, cuz! Oh, oh I forgot about Wait, that! Oh, so they're just, like, beating Jesus. up Leatherface? Yeah, they're beating Christ. him up. They they have, like, a chain around his neck that's being pulled into a giant meat grinder. Oh, my and God. And she ends up saving him. I saw this movie years ago, and I had blocked most of it out, and you're just bringing back all of these oh, yeah. terrible well, flashbacks. You know, thank you for making me watch it, because I was taken aback by it. <laughs> What a what an angle to try and go for. Why would you why would you try and make leather he wears people's faces? <laughs> he is not a sympathetic character at all. And they turn it around. It ends in a, it's such a bad way. It turns out the grandmother left a note, which is mentioned in the beginning. Of course, she doesn't read it because if she did, she would have realized the note lays out everything that she would have known. The note explains outright, like, your cousin is living in the basement. He's going to take care of you. If she had read that first, she probably wouldn't have wanted to go into the house at all. If I found out, oh, there's going to be some dude who wears people's faces down there. That's cool. Yeah, I think it's the it's the timeline that bothers me the most about this movie. Like how she's a baby in the mid-70s, but then in 2012, she's only in her 20s. And by that same logic, 
Logic Leatherface, who's in his 30s in the 70s, should be an old man incapable of even carrying a chainsaw. Right, that's the... He should be way older. Isn't uh, Trey Songs in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, Trey Songs plays the boyfriend to Alexandra Daddario. He doesn't do anything truly offensive. No one in this movie does. It's dumb horror movie fare up until then. She decides to stay in the house with Leatherface. Oh, my God. So, already, dumb movie. Ugh, it's so dumb. It's so fucking stupid. It is so dumb. (laughs) And so, I think that's really all I really want to say about the movie. I don't want to have to go into any more detail. I'm just going to leave it there. I give it half a star. Don't watch it. Just don't watch it. <laughs> just don't. Yeah, just I, don't. As somebody who's seen it before, I can concur. Don't watch this movie. It fucking sucks. So, oh, there we go. God. That is Texas Chainsaw 3D. All right, moving on. Uh, we have our game for the episode. Yeah, game time. Let's play game a time. game. I have three scenarios, and for one of the scenarios, pitch a trap that the Jigsaw Killer would use. I'll just let you each pick one um so i'll start with cleveland would you rather do one two or three just numbers uh, we'll leave one on. okay one I think is my most creative okay i'll nice. do uh number three number three okay then you get number two eugene okay i'll give you guys what five minutes and we're back tell us ben who is going to start this off well uh, Cleveland is confident enough that he wants to go last, so let's just go in reverse order then. We'll start at three, go to two, and then one. Okay, so that's me then first. My, uh, sin is that they always park in handicapped spaces even though they're not handicapped. Picture this. They wake up in a room. It's a long room. They're lying on the ground. A foot or so above them, a shitload of razor wire so that they have to stay down close to the floor. They have, in true audition inspiration, piano wire wrapped around their ankles, cutting into their Achilles tendons. They see a small door at the end of the room that they can escape through, but a steamroller wheel is coming slowly behind them. So they have to crawl all the way to the end of the room, but the farther they crawl, the more tension is put onto the piano wire, and it cuts more and more into their ankles, severing their Achilles tendons, and eventually, if they make it all the way to the end, cutting off their feet. So if they do make it all the way to the end and escape, they'll have a reason to park in handicap spots. That's fantastic. Otherwise, they end up crushed like a tube of toothpaste under a steamroller wheel. (laughs) Oh, and the the jigsaw puppet is driving the steamroller. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Eugene? Okay, so mine was, they shined a laser at an airplane, causing it to crash. (laughs) (laughs) And so mine begins with the man waking up in a... 
storage area. Across from him, a survivor from the crash that he caused. <gasps> in the middle of the room is a bomb that's going to go off in five minutes. The way to deactivate the bomb, you need to put something on the scale. You need to put some eyes on there. The choice between both of them is that one of them has to be blinded. They have to get their eyes taken out so that they can save themselves or save the other person. The twist is that in order to survive, they need to cooperate with each other and both get rid of one eye because <gasps> once they escape, they're going to have to pilot the airplane that they're actually stuck in. <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> so it all takes place in an nice. airplane all yes, along? Yes, they're in a giant oh. cargo plane. <laughs> So, I love that. There we go. That is my jigsaw trick. What a twist. (laughs) I love that. Oh, fucking hell, you guys. Um, All right, so I am feeling immediate regret at picking the most serious of the three options. Mine, I I just went for, like, a legit saw trap. Y'all's are great. great. God damn. All right, so mine is, the guy's issue is he designed a bridge that fell apart. The person was like a contractor and he uh, he skimped out on the pricing of the bridge making and it's a big suspension bridge and the suspension cables were poorly made and so the bridge collapsed, you know, killing a number of people on the suspension bridge. So he wakes up in your typical saw warehouse environment and he is suspended on one of these suspension cables. Oh. Now, his, it's the middle of him is, is, in, is suspended. So uh, he has an elaborate connection on his neck for the top half of it, like um, uh, sort of like the bear, tra- the reverse bear trap, and uh, the other half of it is uh, connected to his feet, leaving his hands free. The top of him is suspended to like the the ceiling of this warehouse, and then the bottom of him is suspended to this massive like two ton block of cement that's being suspended by several other cables on his left and right. Are you following me so far? This trap is about as complex and convoluted as the Saw franchise. <laughs> yes, I am following. Okay, good. Now, he wakes up in this position, to which point the, the jigsaw puppet on a TV or some shit explains to him, wrapped around his neck is a jar of thumbtacks. So, uh, the lid, this is important, the, the lid of the, the thumbtack jar is what's holding the thumbtack jar. So, he unscrews the lid and is now holding the thumbtack jar as he is suspended. It is explained to him that he must take the bitter pill, and that's the, the jigsaw pun, and that each uh, one of the thumbtacks is representative of the number of people who died on the suspension bridge oh that <laughs> he, he, he fucked over. He then has to begin ingesting these thumbtacks as the, the cables on either side of them begin to slowly snap, which will create the pressure to break to snap him in half by the end of it. What in my scenario, ends up happening to the guy because, of course, he doesn't make it out of it because we want to see this guy get pulled in half. He eats, like, four of the six thumbtacks, at which point he spasms and accidentally drops the jar. And uh, and then we see him go into a panic as he then gets ripped apart by the the suspension tether and you see his skull and spine get separated from his body. This is going to be a tough choice. Well, um, I'll go in reverse order, uh, do a little crit on each. I think uh, so I, I love the, the visual of this dude just snacking on thumbtacks <laughs> as he's hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> like, just pretty, pretty fucking hilarious. Eugene, the, the, the twist of the one person keeping their eyes was fucking great. Perfect yeah, for the solid. Saw franchise. Great twist. And of course, 
making the handicapped parking spot deserved <laughs> is fantastic. Out of these three, it's a tough call, but I think I'm going to have to give it to Eugene yes! on this one. Oh, having, having the yeah. final twist of them being on an airplane the whole time having to land it is just so convoluted and dumb that it could be in a song yeah, movie. That's, that's such a winner I, I i totally agree that is a very good yeah. one yeah i will i will accept my own bitter pill <laughs> i have been bested all right so. eugene let All me right. have it. What am I watching? Is it okay if I use a turkey-related horror movie? Yeah. Absolutely. Man? All right, then I was searching it up, and I found one that sounds interesting. It's called Blood Freak. That's what I was going to give you. Oh, shit. No all way. Right. Nice. All right. Uh, if it's all right, I just want to read a little excerpt of a description of Oh, yes, please of it. do. So, Blood Freak, Reefer Madness meets Dracula meets Butterball. This is the story of a man seduced by pot and experimented on by science, who is transformed into a turkey-headed creature with a thirst for blood. A blood freak, if you will. Oh my god. Okay, I'm actually really excited about watching that movie. I might have to just watch it with you. I'm jealous. I want to see it. This sounds incredible. Oh, man. Well, this brings us to the end of our torture porn episode. As we mentioned, next episode will be our Thanksgiving special. We will be talking about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving 3, and I will be giving a solo review of Blood Freak. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on uh, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Libsyn, all of the above. I want to thank Cleveland very much for being on this episode. It's been a great time, um, and I'm going to give him a minute to uh, do a bit of self-promotion. Go ahead, Cleve. Yeah, well, first off, thank you guys. It was a total blast. I love hanging out with y'all. It was fun to have these objectives throughout the week of watching all of these movies, especially going to see Jigsaw for homework. That's that's kind of a new one for me. All right, so plugging. Uh, first off, if you haven't heard of it, check out the game Castle Battles. It's available on Steam for Mac and PC, as well as most mobile devices. Uh, and Linux, we added recently. So oh, great. you can check it out on whatever medium you so choose. Uh, it's a delightful little RTS fantasy game that we created a while back, uh, a year ago. And keep an eye out for It Stares Back. That's our new title that we've just announced uh, into open development. Uh, and we'll be keeping you up to date on Twitter and YouTube. Check yeah, it out. Follow Light Arc Studios on Twitter and also YouTube for all the newest updates on that. Ben and I are working on this game as well, so it's Woo. something we're uh, very excited about. I am just a fan, but I will say Castle Battles is a great game. It's on mobile devices as well. It's certainly one of the best mobile games just out there flat, so... If you get a chance, definitely check it out. Well, thank you so much for listening. Again, it's been a great time as always. We are the pod people, and we will catch you next time. I'm Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Eugene Lundin. And I'm Ben Sheets. And I'm Cleveland Mosier. Have a spooky night. Spooky! <laughs> <laughs> Ooh.